Welcome, everybody, to the Illusion of Consensus podcast. I am Professor Jay Bhattacharya, and I am delighted to have here with me uh, Lee Fong, who is an incredible investigative journalist. Uh, although he doesn't look it, he's been uh, working in the uh, working as a, as an investigative journalist for like what fifteen, twenty years, something like, something like that. <laughs> yeah, a little over fifteen years. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Lee, Lee, uh, I, Lee, I, I want I want the listeners to hear a little bit about about your history, but but you started out. Uh, in in um, in in doing investigative journalism from a political bent, yeah, that's right. I I grew up in the Washington D.C. area and always drawn to politics and public life. You know, I'm a millennial, so you know, I, I watched the Pentagon burn uh, after on 9/11 on the day. Um, grew up, you know, on, right on the Beltway, and you know the the Iraq War, the War on Terror. The Bush re-election campaign in 2004. I mean, this, this is what I was obsessed with as a teenager. And initially, I was kind of drawn to the far left. You know, if you're an adolescent, you know, marching on the streets is really fun. And it feels like it's you're doing something, even if you're not, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, from there, I, I just kind of I, I, I quickly realized that I wanted to make a profession out of working in media or politics or public policy. I wasn't sure. And I interned at a number of places. I ended up interning at maybe a dozen different places in politics and policy and media. Um, and the place where I seemed to enjoy the experience and the work the most was investigative reporting. And the job that I landed at first out of college was at a um, think tank, the Center for American Progress, that has a fairly ideological and partisan bent. You know, it says it's nonpartisan, but it's actually, you know, fairly pro-Democrat. Um, and for a while, they actually had a relatively independent, and, and I do mean this sincerely, uh, relatively independent blog. And we had 20 of us. It was Matthew Iglesias, Faz Shakir. A lot of people have gone off, gone on to do really interesting things. And we we're writing about the first few years of the Obama administration. And that was just a really wonderful first gig in media. It taught me a lot. It also made me a little bit more jaded about politics in DC. Uh, I got to travel the country just as the Tea Party movement was taking shape, you know, going all over Missouri and Indiana, Ohio, just talking to regular people about why they were disappointed with the Obama administration, why they wanted to join these kind of movements. And then seeing, you know, the, uh, the development of and the nexus of special interest money and public policy and what is a real grassroots movement and what is AstroTurf? I mean, these are interesting questions. You know, if you're if you're a billionaire, if you're a corporation and you say, I want to support a bill or I want to kill legislation and you use your name, you, you might not have as much credibility. So what you see in D.C. is that you have literally hundreds of consultants that specialize just in either harnessing pre-existing grassroots groups and, and kind of nudging them in a certain direction that benefits a certain corporation or wealthy person, or even creating out a whole cloth, entire organizations, you know, whole, you know, networks of groups that will be the pressure, the, the public face of a special interest. And, you know, this, this type of dynamic fascinated me. I saw it all over DC well, and it became we, like we, a multi-million dollar industry, especially under Obama. Well, you had, you had, a, you had uh, one of the most important stories you ever broke, I think, uh, you know, I was looking through your, your back, your, your, the stories you've written, some of the, some of the stories you've written to prepare for this was identifying the, the Koch brothers as a, as a funder of the, of the Tea Party movement. Yeah. I should, I should confess there's some irony in this because uh, 
when I wrote the Great Barrington Declaration with Martin Kulldorff and uh, and Sinatra Gupta, I got accused of Koch Brothers funding, and it was a total lie. Like I didn't, I took we took zero dollars for it. Uh, I, I it was like one of these like Coke by association things because we the, the 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 little conference we held where where I, you know I paid my own way. It was held at uh, this place called the American Institute of Economic Research in mm. Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I think at some number of years ago they'd had a conference that had gotten like fifty thousand dollars or something for 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 to sponsor them for that that conference. I don't I had nothing to do with the conference. I didn't know anything about the place. The GBD conference had nothing to do with it. And then there's this accusation of oh you're coke funded as a way to like undermine the the the, the public health argument we're making right rather than whereas like what you're doing is you're what you're doing is you're saying look you just know who's funding this. This 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 effort that you're doing, you're you're like honestly trying to say what it's what's what's fun. It's, it's in the public interest to know a public, but it's funny to have that kind of honest reporting turned into a weapon. Hi everyone, a quick word from our first and exciting new sponsor, Alchemy Elements. We've been shopping around trying to find the best sponsors that align with our mission and our values and what we stand for, and we've come across Alchemy Elements, which I'm very excited to bring to you guys which is a synergistic herbal supplement. It's a mix of several adaptogenic plant compounds. For those of you who don't know, adaptogens, you might have heard on Andrew Huberman's podcast, are uh, plant medicines that help the body adapt to stress, essentially. And so there's a number of adaptogens in here, including cordyceps mushrooms, reishi mushrooms, astrologus, shiljot, polygala, lion's mane mushrooms, and other compounds as well. And you just take a tablespoon of this, you put it in your morning coffee or your smoothie or protein shake, and you're good to go. Um, I've been doing this for about a week. And as it suggests, um, some of the short-term effects of increased focus, increased concentration, more energy, I've already been feeling some of that. Uh, look forward to taking it more in the long term and reporting back as we do more of these ads. Uh, we've been very careful and selective in what to what to sponsor on our program. And this is something that I can totally get behind. And as long as you keep hearing ads about this particular product, Alchemy Elements, you can be assured that this is something that I stand behind and can personally vouch for and recommend individuals try. Um, so for a limited time right now, um, people who are watching or listening to this podcast, they can get a 10% discount on their first order or they can get a 30% discount for all subscription orders if you um, subscribe for a certain amount of deliveries per month. And if you um, order a subscription package, then you can get the premium gold kit as well, which includes this um, really nice gold bottle and a gold spoon to store your alchemy elements. Um, just use the code word illusion. If you're on Spotify or Apple or Substack, um, we'll drop a link below, or you can manually. Uh, type in alchemyelements.com and you can add um, your uh, products to the cart and you can put in the code illusion and you can get the 10% off discount for the first order or 30% off for the subscription order and you can get your gold kit. Uh, thank you so much to Alchemy Elements. Um, please check them out and uh, I hope you enjoy their products. All right, back to the show. It's It's the nature of this type of political reporting. No matter if you're touching any hot button issue, there's going to be someone else who takes it and weaponizes it and uses it in a way that 
is partisan or dishonest. You see this on the right with some exaggerated claims around Soros funding. And I think it's fair to look into Soros funding, you know, that there could be some inappropriate behaviors there, some dark money. But the same thing with Coke, you know, it, it, we should ask these questions, but we shouldn't just use them to bully and silence people. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that I, I wanted to like get get that out because so you but and and what I saw was that your 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 record is really it's not even about politics. It's not really even about about uh, you know it's what it, what it's about is like trying to understand the 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 structures the the financing structures the support structures that shape how we view you know scientific things political things. Uh, I mean that's really the the core. Did I get it right? I mean is that is that was that yeah? What I mean I'm I'm interested in everything under the sun, but that is kind of a common thread in a lot of my reporting. I'm, you know, I like talking to sources. I like meeting people. I, I like writing profiles of people. I like going out and just, this is an incredibly large and diverse country. I like talking to people. That being said, I feel like maybe there's a lot of reporters that do that. And a lot of reporters that are probably better than me at that. But I, I think I've, I have a comparative advantage in that I, I'm just really fascinated and drawn to original source material into court documents, corporate disclosures, you know, a, a variety of, you know, as someone who's often reported at the margins at independent media outlets at, you know, small magazines or media outlets, you know, it's, it's hard to, to say when you're going up against the New York Times or Wall Street Journal that you've got a big story that they don't. But if you've got the documents, if you have the original source documents, it's a way to stand out. And it's something that I've, I've just kind of realized by my stature in the media, kind of, that this is a, a way to kind of prove my reporting and to show it is to focus on the documents and to really look at, take a look at power and, and how it affects people. Yeah. Well, so I asked you on the show because uh, you wrote a fantastic story that actually involved me and Moderna, but I'm going to, I'm going to save that for the second half of the podcast. I want to, I want to go through a couple other stories that I thought were really interesting when I was reading um, your, your work that, uh, that I think the listeners would love to, to know more about. And it's directly on the in the context of this of the podcast theme, which is the illusion of consensus, mm. the idea that we have consensus in science and public health and public policy, um, that experts all agree on something when, in fact, they probably don't. Like they may right. not. Who knows, right? Um, uh, so, so one uh, one one story. Uh, the, this is uh, now you used to work at the Intercept, um, which is a fascinating uh, uh, outlet, um, and I think one of the last stories you wrote there focused on Twitter and in particular on on a, a online covert campaign by P the Pentagon to to influence how Twitter uh, manages messages by foreign actors I'm, it's not clear actually um, uh, by people anyways saying things that the Pentagon doesn't like that's right. I mean, just to give your listeners a little bit of context, Twitter's transformed over the years. You know, a long time ago, um, Twitter, out of all the tech companies, was one of the most uh, outspoken in defending free speech and was opposed to any government meddling. Um, you know, it's always a push and pull in, in D.C. There, there's government censors and government meddling. Um, but that transformed, especially after the 2016 election, after the allegations and, and some real evidence of uh, Russian interference. Russians sponsored a few, especially on, so, on social media. They, they, they spent about $100,000 on a few social media ads, mainly on Facebook, I think a little bit on Twitter. I mean, this is a few thousand dollars, but of course it caused huge alarm bells in Washington. 
It led to threats of, of regulation, threats of all kinds of new government oversight. Twitter, in response, created a whole new team. They testified before Congress. They created a new disclosure page. And they said, we are against any uh, government state-operated influence operations, meaning you know, governments creating inauthentic behavior, bots or you know, fake names to kind of do the illusion of consensus, to, to manufacture consent, to make it seem like that the public is agreeing and discussing uh, issues, but it's really just a, for lack of a better term, a disinformation campaign. Um, I was one of the journalists invited and who participated in the Twitter files. I came on a little bit later than Barry and Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi, but around the same time as them. And I had been looking into this this issue because there had been some reports that the Pentagon had some some accounts seemingly tied to the Pentagon were creating fake news outlets that were anti-Iran, anti um some of the, the forces in Yemen, some of the other US adversaries in the Middle East, they were kind of producing exactly what the Russians were accused of. You know, these salacious stories that Iran takes refugees and chops them up and sells their organs and you know this type of this type of thing that scares people. And I looked in the Twitter, in their internal tools and in their emails, and what I found was a really interesting story because what while Twitter was publicly telling the world and Congress that they would shut down any state-backed influence operation, they were giving velvet glove treatment to the Pentagon's disinformation campaigns. They were take they you know back pre Elon Musk, the check, blue check mark was not just um, an aesthetic thing to distinguish, you know, elites versus the proles. It actually provided some boosting to your account. You made you more visible. You were less likely to, or you're more likely to trend. Uh, you were less likely to get the NSFW flags or to, you know, there's some, there's some backend stuff there. So what the, so the military said, you know, we've got these, the secret operation. We don't want to be noticed, but we want to make sure that our, our accounts in Yemen, in Iraq, in Lebanon and Jordan and Syria and so forth, they are influential. So we want the power of the blue check, but we don't want the actual blue check. So they made a special tool, the Twitter engineers, that gave the military accounts that power. And then the, the initial discussions talked about it being disclosed. In fact, you, you have hundreds of these Pentagon accounts that did not say that they were being operated in sent by CENTCOM. They were being operated in Florida in, in the base there. Um, and by some military contractors, they were having conversations. You know, th these are people who claim to be, I'm just a, a normal Iraqi citizen concerned about X, Y, and Z, you know. Um, but th these were, these were, this was a, a Pentagon influence op. And it went on for years. Simultaneously, Twitter was telling the, telling the world that they weren't doing or allowing any of this, these operations. But meanwhile, they were meeting. Uh, with Pentagon leaders, with, with DOD officials to help them keep the secret. They knew exactly what was going on. In fact, they were assisting them. That's really interesting. So, I mean, Twitter in that sense was an agent of the American government. Yeah. Uh, and, but the thing is about Twitter is it's not simply just, uh, you know, this person posts and they're influencing Iraqi public opinion. This person posts That's right. and they're influencing opinion american opinion i mean i, I mean I, I grew up in an age where i thought it was not you know kosher for the american government to propagandize the american population so did i <laughs> so these changes have only happened recently and you know the, there are some very rational or at least you know 
intuitive reasons. You know, we, you had the rise of ISIS uh, about a decade, over a decade ago, and there was the fear of social media recruitment. What did the U.S. government do? They, they created these new social media operations, the Global Engagement Center at the State Department, uh, Special Office at the Pentagon. Eventually, the FBI and DHS had their similar task force, and they were thinking of ways to fight Islamic radicalization. But just as any government bureaucracy, it's once you create a bureaucracy that has a purpose, it's, it's hard to get rid of it. There's, there's, there tends to be mission creep. And unlike uh, radio or television broadcasts that were once maybe centered at Cuba or North Korea or China during the Cold War or in the 90s, you know, this is the Internet. Anything that you supposedly aim at a alleged enemy or adversary is going to get back to the U.S., so, yeah. you know, the, the Congress very quietly lifted some of the barriers on propaganda towards a domestic, our, our domestic audience. No, I learned about the Smith-Munt Act. Uh, yes, which, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so there's been ex- exemptions to that now. Um, yeah, they used to, right, it used to be a, 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 an iron wall uh, mm-hmm. where American government was, would not be allowed to use propaganda tactics at all. And um, that, that wall is not just crumbled, it, I'm not sure if it's there anymore. And I mean, I mean, this is an area that I think there's a lot more stories to be told. We, we don't really know. Um, yeah. We know that the government's spending a lot of money on contractors and internal social media operations. And if it wasn't for Elon Musk purchasing Twitter, I don't know if the story that I reported would have gotten out. That was really just luck. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 uh, you've sort of lifted up like a little rock and you see a lot of, uh, a lot of little beetles running around. It's, uh, um, I, it's, it's, it's funny because like I actually in the, in Twitter 1.0, uh, I applied a couple of times. I joined Twitter in August of 2021 after years of telling my assistant professors not to, not to join, just, just do your science. That's how you change the world. Uh, that's how naive I was. The, um, uh, but, but then I, I, uh, when I joined, I applied to be blue check. You know, I'm a professor in the, in the, in the, uh, top medical school. I have a lot of publications. I figured, okay, I should qualify. And I'm, you know, I'm in the news all the time because of, of the Great Barrington Declaration. So I figured, okay, that's, that, I'm notable enough. I got back that I was not notable enough. Crazy. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was just one of these things where like, I, okay, I'm like, okay, I don't, whatever, I don't really care uh, that much. But it was, it was one of the, I, again, I didn't really understand what the blue check meant, honestly, when I first joined Twitter. Um, but it was it was one of these things where I look back and it's like why did they why did Twitter decide that like what made them decide that well it can't have been organic well like, nor- we we know that I mean this whole process is incredibly politicized I mean another Twitter files story I did a few stories was just looking at the government and quasi government connections that were shaping some of the COVID decisions right just as the Pentagon. And a lot of as it was weighing in on these Middle East operations, you had you had this encroaching government role. Once that those floodgates were opened, it wasn't just centered on Islamic terrorism or adversaries in the Middle East. It started going after domestic uh, dissent. The, the same lobbyists who helped set up, who were you know the, the point person for Twitter with the government and DoD. At first, they're just talking to the military. Then they're talking to the CDC. Then they're talking to various uh, NGOs that work with the federal government and identifying alleged pandemic misinformation and disinformation and deciding who's boosted and who's shadow banned. Uh, like yourself, we found out that you were shadow banned. Um, yeah. it, it, it's Black just, it, 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 
They blacklisted, yeah. It's an escalating issue. Once you kind of open the doors to government influence and with no transparency, uh, it, it, it spreads. Okay, so that was, I mean, that's a fascinating story. Um, but l- l- I wanted to move forward in time. Um, you now have a Substack, a fantastic Substack, actually, uh, with, with just your name, Li Fang. Um, and uh, uh, it, it's actually, I'm, it, I regret that Elon has a little war with Substack going on because Terrible. every time I post a link to one of your articles, it gets like one one hundredth of the, of uh, not just your articles, any Substack article, it gets one one hundredth of the engagement it kind of ought to get. Um, and uh, yeah, Elon, lift the embargo. Stop. Give us actual free speech and stop posturing. Yeah, um, but but you have a, a fantastic Substack, and I recommend anyone listening to go subscribe. It's it's, it's really I've learned. I, I, I just I can't even begin to tell you how much I've learned from from uh, from listening to this. But I want to give the listeners some sense of this. Um, you had a you had an article just uh, just recently about a British AI firm uh, called Logically AI. And um, and the title is that 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 logically AI is poised to help uh, uh, censor activists and journalists, and then influence the American twenty twenty four election. That's right. This is I think the I mean I know it's the biggest profile of the sperm. It's received a lot of heat in the UK, where they were the main government partner early in the pandemic to monitor misinformation and disinformation. And just as in the U.S. context, there was mission creep. What did they identify in uh, their reports as mis- and disinformation? People criticizing mass vaccination of children, of lockdowns, of the vaccine passports that were proposed in the U.K. You know, they were proposing much more onerous policies in many respects in the U.K. And the U.K. was looking at government critics, even members of parliament, journalists, uh, activists, uh, elected officials, and they were being classified as mis- and disinformation. This firm logically had, and unlike a lot of these other companies, there's a, you know, there's a whole cluster of these NGOs that claim to do this, but this firm grew rapidly. They use artificial intelligence to identify. Then they have a public facing site, a news, a semi news site that publicizes, you know, the, the biggest kind of spreaders of misinformation. Then they also have a backdoor access at Facebook. Content that they flag as misinformation gets automatically uh, down downgraded. Uh, in some cases, there's a there's an automatic fact check that pops up. Um, so this 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 company had a lot of influence in shaping the discourse in the UK. They're, they're working in India. They're working throughout the European Union. They're coming to the United States. They've they've already uh, secured contracts with the DOD with the with Army Special Command. They've piloted tests with the Chicago Police Department to analyze rap videos and predict police uh, poli- predict crime. Um, they're working with the Oregon Secretary of State. They already had a contract for the 2022 midterms. They're, they're currently uh, attempting to get a contract for this for this year, and they've negotiated with D- DHS for radicalization and election misinformation for this presidential election. So they're coming. I mean, it's it's really interesting because like I have a lot of colleagues in the UK um, that were that were subject to you know attacks by uh, attacks by so, in, in, on social media and elsewhere and suppression, including people like Sinatra Gupta who co-wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, Carl Hennigan, uh, who's the uh, director of Center for Evidence Based Medicine at Oxford, 
And um, it seems really likely that they were the targets of this co- this company, this specific company. Yeah, they were, are, you know, there's no Elon Musk, you know, equivalent that's happened in the UK where, you know, you have this great disclosure. We've only had a trickle of documents. There's a fantastic activist group, Big Brother Watch UK, that conducted record requests to their government, mostly redacted. But in the few files that are unredacted, you see these journalists and activists and academics, but we don't know the full extent. Yeah, I mean, so there's, I, I've been in contact with Silky Carlo. I, there's a, yes. I mm-hmm. works with us. Um, and uh, actually I put in my name on their request. Okay. Uh, but my, my name did not pop up. Um, but uh, but but uh, some colleagues of mine in the UK academics did pop up, um, and uh, you know it's just it's funny it's like you uh, have this idea that there is a consensus among academics uh, uh, in favor of some of the public health policies that were adopted you know the lockdowns the school closures the mask mandates the vaccine mandates and so on, um, but uh, if you have a firm like this essentially uh, putting their thumb on the scale working with social media companies. Uh, how do you know that that there were actually there were more people who favored lockdown, more more scientists who favored lockdowns than than didn't? No, that's a great point. I mean, and, and so many of these claims, you know, even if it is disputed or you know the the, the truth is out there in, in an election, I mean, when everything is politicized, how do you determine truth? How does the government determine truth? Well, one of the things that kind of shocked me with the Twitter files, or maybe shouldn't be too surprising. I would see accounts that were flagged by the Department of Homeland Security and their partnership with the secretaries of state that were sending tweets to Twitter HQ to you know ban or remove. And it would be mostly small conservative accounts saying, you know, don't trust vote by mail. Don't trust vote by mail. That's how they're going to steal our votes. You know, that's someone's opinion, right? Um, Twitter was taking action, seeing that, okay, this is misinformation, disinformation. We're going to take it down. In the chats, at Twitter, they were looking at Democrat accounts with hundreds of thousands of, of followers, people like Howard Dean, who said, don't trust vote by mail because Trump controls the post office. Don't vote by mail. Identical messages, a phrasing a little bit different depending on the, you know, the, the speaker. But for a conservative, those accounts got deleted or shadow banned or what have you. For Howard Dean, untouched. So it, this is that this is just that was just a big pilot the 2020 election of of you, of having these partnerships with NGOs and tech companies and these you know investigative anti misinformation firms and they failed the test but they they're hoping to expand it for this election. I mean it's really it's really interesting because um, like I, you know I, I, it's it's one thing for your Twitter or Facebook I mean if they're if they have some left wing bias. You know, you just they up front, you know, they have some left. I don't have any problem with that. Like, that's fine. That's their that's their business. You can have Twitter and you can have Parler and they can go at it. Um, uh, but I don't but that wasn't like that. Right? It was it, it was the, the sense was that the, the, the story was that if whatever is happening, this this suppression of misinformation was even handed thing. Right. Where they're going to they're going to yeah. have some neutral way of dealing with uh, information about scientific information. Uh, election information, you name it, but it's not even-handed, is it? It's not. And, you know, even though in an ideal world, we would have just unlimited choices and we would have true competition, but technology is different. It's different than a railroad or a utility. We have just a few firms that are dominant and they use their dominance to squeeze out competition. So, you know, you might create a conservative Twitter or a parlor. Parlor 
was kicked off the App Store by the, the, the two big companies that control all the apps, Google and, uh, and Apple. So um, what do you do there? You know, uh, we, we have big tech concentration and you have collaboration with big government and opaque private actors that claim to be acting in the, the public interest. But really, you know, are they for-profit companies just trying to make enough money? Are they shadow partisan groups that are just pro-Republican or pro-Democrat trying to censor their opponents? That's not clear, and I think that's what's happening. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, and and that that uh, that's a good segue, I think, into you know the, the, when we're talking about shadowy groups, um, to, to to conversations about health specifically, and your and some of your some of the really fascinating reporting about health. And I promise we'll get to Moderna, Moderna in just a bit. Yeah. Um, bef- before that, um, uh, you were telling me about a story you once wrote about uh, about pesticides. Yeah, I, I did a long profile, I think the longest look at the history of neonicotinoids. This is a class from the 90s, relatively young, but now the most dominant pesticide in the world. And just the kind of battles in academia that Bayer and some of the other companies that had produced uh, this pesticide was, were generating massive profits, wanted to suppress criticism, especially within the academic community. And as I kind of, pesticides are not my focus. I've written about them a few times, but as I I spent about six months writing this one story, and as I I kind of delved deeper into these dynamics, I mean, it was just fascinating. It was was not just Bayer, and it was not just neonicotinoids. Many of the major herbicides, um, pesticides, insecticides um, that that we use that may be causing issues with with, uh, with insects, with human health, with some mammals, um, you know, a lot of these compounds are relatively new and they're being mass used for scientists and academics that were raising questions, simply doing the basic research of how this affects um, non-target species. The, the chemical in- industry came down like a hammer. You know, there, there was the case of Tyrone Hayes at UC Berkeley who was studying astrazine, an herbicide made by Syngenta. Documents came out from an unrelated uh, litigation, a lawsuit in Illinois. In the in the process of discovery, uh, many documents showed that Syngenta was harassing Tyrone for researching astrazine. They were not just sending document requests designed to intimidate him. They were sending a young person to follow him around the country and record him everywhere he went to track his whereabouts at, at all times, to, to physically intimidate him from doing his research, for simply researching uh, a commonly used herbicide that we can find in the water in, in much of this country in, in very agricultural states like Iowa and Illinois, you test the water, you find astrazine, it's water soluble, you know? I mean, it's funny because the, there's a history of, of journalism exposing this kind of like uh, Rachel Carson wrote this book called silent spring, exposing the consequences of DDT for, uh, for birds and for the, the ecosystem more generally. I mean, for, and it was, I mean, it was, it was a shocking expose and it really changed things like the, the mass use of DDT declined pretty sharply after, uh, in, in the years after she wrote that book and can sort of set off the modern environmental movement in some ways. Yes. Um, and what you have with, and what you're reporting is that you, you, you currently have that problem except at a much larger scale. And if there's a Rachel Carson around, uh, uh, like this this man, uh, this professor Tyrone Hayes, he's trying to he's trying he's not even like he's not even trying to be Rachel Carson. He's just trying to do 
scientific work. That's measuring. right. If, if you're an academic raising and a researcher raising questions about a widely used compound, a product, a vaccine or a pharmaceutical product or a pesticide, and big companies realize that if the research increases the risk of litigation, of regulation, of public backlash against their product, they have every incentive to destroy that academic or researcher to try to get their funding canceled, to kind of lobby the administrators at that university to steer them away from that research or to even intimidate them. There's oftentimes these front group websites that will, you know, plaster Google with this scientist is a liar and, you know, lots of kind of sleazy tactics like that. Um, and as we've seen with the pandemic and the vaccine debate, many of these, these tactics that have been applied to researchers and scientists went mainstream, um, just going after anyone who are critical of these policies. I mean, I, I remember the first, uh, first time that happened to me, I was, uh, you know, it was in 2020, I'd written a paper on, on like measuring how widespread the disease, COVID disease was in early 2020. And there was like a reporter doing hit pieces on me, a hit piece on me. There was there was like you know uh, the, uh, the, the these like sort of insinuations that I I'd done some some something some like underhanded thing just by doing research, um, you know and and it was it was really kind of shocking. I was like and I and, and I remember the first time I saw online a call for me being fired because I published a study that someone didn't like, and I mean it's just it's it's it for uh, I thought I had thick skin Lee and and you know for an academic I actually pretty had pretty pretty thick skin. But it's it's one of these things like where you just you just don't you, it, it it happens enough times you you just say okay maybe I'll just be quiet. Uh, yeah. Some of my friends who were involved in some of that early research decided to put their heads down and and not stick it back back up above the parapet because it's not we like we as academics um, we're just not we're not politicians we're not used to this kind of fight. Um, and so, so when you're in the middle of it, it just feels like there's it's taking it's taking away from your ability to do the work that you want to do. Why not just go in a place that, uh, that, that where that's not going to happen? Well, Stop. that's that's the intent behind these intimidation campaigns. It is to silence you. It is to prevent you from speaking up or from doing a type of research. It is designed to put your head down and stop asking questions and to stop challenging conventional wisdom. I mean, if you look at some of their specialized PR firms that work for the pharmaceutical and chemical industries, that's all they do is harass scientists and researchers. That that's what they sell their services as, and they plant stories with media outlets. They they use their connections in the media. They they work with social media in terms of placing ads and creating these kind of dummy websites that slander you know very good science and researchers. It's a tragedy because I, I don't think the average scientist is prepared for this at all. I mean, when I was doing the pesticide reporting, I talked to a number of people that gave me so much information, lots of you know, really interesting insights. They said, no matter what, you can't quote me in your piece, even though I'm a, you know, a tenured professor at a, at a, at a big university, they didn't want to lose their funding. They didn't want to have to put their family through all kinds of months of harassment. So, you know, that, that actually, you know, not many things surprised me. I've written about so many subjects and it's, you know, there's lots of bad things that happen. And I, I'm a little bit, I don't, I don't want to say cynical, but I'm used to it. But that actually shocked me talking to researchers for this other story that I think is very related to what, what you've, what you've gone through, that it works. It, it gets people to, to shut up. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think part of it is uh, on the one hand, I, I can, I having been through it, I understand like, like the, the impulse, right? So I, I, I just like 2020 middle of 2020 and, and um, 
the the there's all these hit pieces attacks on my fa- my my wife my family like hit pieces in in BuzzFeed against my wife. Oh. Um, it was it was just like a really just a nasty personal attack again for just for writing a paper on on how widespread COVID already was in early in, in April 2020. And um, I just had to decide. I was like, okay, do I do I keep my head down? The university was sending these signals. If I put my head down, they, they I could go back to being you know uh, esteemed professor or whatever. Um, and I just couldn't do it, Lee. But I think I can totally understand why so many academics would. Um, it seems like a violation of a, of a social compact, right? So I have a tenured position. That's like a that's that's a huge privilege, right? In principle, the tenure is supposed to protect my right to say what I believe, whether anyone likes it or not. Um, that's the whole purpose of tenure, right? This whole social, this whole social purpose of tenure is to create a class of people that can say that say true things mm-hmm. um, uh, in 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 science and in and uh, and, and in academic circles. Uh, it doesn't need to worry about what other people are saying, or certainly as far as their their livelihood. But in fact, it, I, what I found is that for most professors, it doesn't work that way. Like they get tenure, and they they if anything, they become more timid because they don't oh. want to fall down the social structure. That's interesting. And I don't know how to fix that because I've seen that too. I hear that all the time. And that's a crisis in America. Yeah. I, um, there, there's a, there's a story that your, your story that you were telling me about, about this, uh, this, the, these pesticides uh, brought up in my, in my mind was this, a story about a drug named Vioxx. Uh, Vioxx is a drug uh, that came out uh, like the late nineties, early, early two thousands. And, uh, uh, I forget the exact date, but the but the 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 key, the, the idea of the drug was that uh, a lot of uh, non sterile and inflammatory drugs cause stomach bleeding, stomach ulcers, um, and Vioxx was using a biochemical pathway that would bypass the thing that they people thought would cause the stomach ulcers to happen, and so it was sold. Uh, I remember it, it as a as a drug that could be given even to elderly people who were prone to getting. Stop bleeding because you know if you have pain you and you want a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, you can't give. If someone's prone to stomach bleeding, you can't give them Advil. You can't give them. You can't give them aspirin. They're gonna. They're gonna have stomach bleeding. Um, and so Vioxx was like a huge um, thing. Like and, and and Merck, I think, was the company that had it. That it was a huge amount of money that they were looking to earn with earn from it. Uh, the uh, the drug. Uh, it, it there was there were signals. That started to come up that the drug causes, you know, uh, cardiovascular events, strokes, heart attacks, things like that. Um, I, I actually remember uh, this is like toward the end of med school, or maybe right after med school was over. I was I was uh, talking to my mom who had uh, needed non steroidal anti-inflammatories for for uh, right after surgery she'd had, and I mentioned Vioxx to her because like I, I was like I'd read the the, the you know so the biochemistry of it it got me all excited. Um. And then a, a few years later, it turns out that it causes strokes and heart attacks. Um, I and, remember the headlines. This yeah, is a huge story. And, and in fact, there's there's a, a, a uh, the, the there was a, there had to be a FDA whistleblower in order to make the FDA actually put black box warnings in and and sort of get the drug uh, restricted uh, in order in, in order for that to happen. Like that, and it there was a story that came out. That Merck, the drug company that made Vioxx, hired investigators to go and harass academics that were writing papers documenting strokes and heart attacks with Vioxx. 
exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a pattern. This is a playbook that you know the company might be different. The in, even the industry might be slightly different, but it's essentially the same tactics that they use to control public opinion, to silence dissent, and to intimidate, particularly researchers and scientists. Because yeah, we're um, really we're, we're easy targets, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the they're the juiciest target because you know most people are just giving their opinion. You know, to actually do the studies, the hard science that prove uh, the health effects of these products. Um, you, have, you, have, you have true power. People like you have power. And that's why they, they focus on silencing you. I mean, the, the funny thing is, is it's, it's psychopathic. Like we're talking about a drug that's going to cause heart attacks and strokes in, 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 in mainly, mainly elder people, older, older people are taking it because they, they want to avoid the stomach bleeding. I, I mean, how do, you, how do you live with yourself? Like you've, you found that this pro, you, you have a product, you, okay, you may put it out in good faith. It turns out they didn't. It turns out that in retrospect, even in the randomized trials, they, they hid evidence of this happening. Huh. Um, but like, let's say you, in good faith, you put it out and, and then some outside researcher discovers that it's having this bad thing. Wouldn't you, as a, as a, like a moral human being, not want to have the, have this drug, like go hurt people? I, I don't, I wish I knew more about the Merck case, but generally speaking, what I've seen in, in too many examples like this is that companies at most receive a civil fine. And if it's a civil fine, then it's, a, it, it's often a tax deduction on a public company's balance sheet. You know, they're serving their, their shareholders. They have a fiduciary interest to make profit. So that, you know, if they can calculate the potential loss, not in human lives, but in just dollars, because they might get slapped on the wrist with a DOJ fine or what have you, they're going to keep doing this. I mean, I, 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 I strongly, I don't want to prescribe any solutions for any policy, but I, I, I generally, in terms of the approach that, that I think needs to be taken is criminal penalties. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're hurting people, if you're killing people with your products and you're not, and no one faces jail time, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen yeah. over and over again. I, you know, I might have disagreed with you in 2019. At this point, I, <laughs> I, I've seen uh, it's really it's really striking. Okay, so finally, uh, I, I invited you on because of the Moderna stories. We it took us 40 minutes to get to it, but I think it was a nice voyage. Um, uh, so, so you, uh, Lee, uh, in um, late November, I think uh, last year, you wrote a piece with the very intriguing title: uh, "Moderna is spying on you." Um, Moderna, of course, is the company that makes uh, the mRNA vaccine, uh, one, one of the mRNA vaccines for Pfizer being the other. Uh, and uh, Moderna, of course, has very close links to the U.S. National Institute of Health. Some of the patents that uh, Moderna has are held by, uh, that uses are, are held by the NIH um, and got a lot, of, a lot of support during Operation Warp Speed. As, as far as I know, it, the only product it has ever put on the market is these COVID vaccines. That's right. I mean, they're very different from AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer. For those companies, I mean, these are well-established companies with dozens, if not hundreds of products. You know, pandemic was one golden opportunity to make a ton of money, but they're moving on already. You know, Pfizer, if you look at their recent healthcare conference in San Francisco, they're talking about the obesity diet drugs of the future. They're, they're done with the vaccine. They're, they're ready to move on and create their own version of Ozempic. That's what they want to focus on. But for Moderna, they're very different. I mean, this is a, this went from a small startup with basically a minuscule valuation to it skyrocketing to over to being worth over a hundred billion dollars uh, in 
on, on in paper wealth, I believe it minted five new billionaires, just this one company alone. I mean, created so much wealth with one product. So with all their eggs in that basket, they've done perhaps more lobbying than the other companies to retain this market share. And as uh, as the pandemic is further and further in the rearview mirror, as Americans have soured on the idea of a third or fourth or fifth booster shot, um, I mean, I, 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 a big part of this reporting was also just listening to the investor calls. This is a public company. They've they've gone on and given these public presentations. I, you can listen to the webcast where they say, you know, people aren't taking our booster. Maybe it's the misinformation. Maybe we need more marketing. Maybe we need more advertising. Maybe we need to, you know, shape public opinion in some way. Uh, what they didn't mention, but they perhaps uh, tip their hat to in, the, in these investor calls, is that the, since early last summer, they've partnered with public good projects. This is the same NGO that worked with Twitter that to censor social media, to give them actual lists of accounts to either de-boost or boost or, 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 or straight up delete. Um, and this is a, this is a group that was previously funded from uh, the biotechnology innovation organization. This is the lobby group for Moderna. Um, okay. This so, is the, just, just let me let me let me start, start just to set this. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm getting a lot of names. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you, this is really important. So this is important. I want I want listeners to understand. So you have you have a company that has a single product. It's this one. It's the, and it's and it and everything that that it's 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 made all these all the all the successes of its of its billionaires come from the success of this one product. The product is dying because the COVID is receding in the, in the minds of Americans and people are not taking the vaccine over and over and over again like they, they, they expected. And um, they're panicking. They're like, okay, what do we do? And they're saying, the problem is like, it's, 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 it's Jay Bhattacharya, it's, it's Alex Berenson. Exactly. Uh, they are, they are d undermining our, uh, the demand for our drug. Exactly. I mean, if you, you, you look at these reports, I mean, I got access from a source to these reports that they conducted on a regular basis starting last year, last summer, when they started really getting, it coincides almost perfectly with these reports that the Americans would not be taking the next round of boosters. Um, they were looking at Aaron Rodgers. Uh, they were lo looking at the, uh, at you. They were looking at, at Berenson. They were even, they are looking at Michael Schellenberger, another Russell Brand, other independent media voices that were not just, you know. Megan Kelly. Megan Kelly. <laughs> so, you know, she talked about the possibility, the real possibility that maybe she received some type of vaccine injury from an auto, from an immune issue that she seemed to have right after receiving a vaccine. You know, they label, they don't know the, the truth of that, but they labeled it as misinformation. I um, mean, just it's it what they labeled as misinformation really spanned the gamut. I mean, some of the stories they flagged, one about potential, there was a, a, a headline last year. A con and congressional inquiry around why the CIA did not come together with their assessment around the origins of COVID. This was looked into by senators. That apparently there's a very real whistleblower from within the CIA. That's a that's misinformation to them. <laughs> this is a real story that's being discussed by NBC News, by major media outlets, and they flag it as misinformation. Well, um, maybe know? you should you should talk about a little bit of what I I, I shared a little bit of what they flagged. On you, yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, so like the the um, so I just tell you, like my my the way I've dealt with the vaccine um, partly was was structured by the fact I knew that 
if I were to directly criticize the vaccine um, or even discuss it in 2021, 2022, when I, on Twitter, I was going to get censored. And so I, I was very, very, very careful about sharing studies, like high quality studies uh, about, about the vaccine. So like, you know, when, when um, information came out about, uh, about, how, uh, about immunity after COVID recovery, that impinges on whether you should take the vaccine, because if you have pretty good immunity after COVID recovery, the marginal benefit of the vaccine is lower. I mean, that's just a, a fact, and you can see it in the scientific evidence. So I would share studies about immunity after COVID recovery with very little extra com comment in order to avoid being censored. Um, and, uh, you know, like, and, and stories of vaccine injuries, I would hear them, I would see evidence of them, but very rarely share them because, again, I just wanted to avoid the stigma that comes from being labeled uh, but, uh, as censored. Uh, and, and so I was, I was fairly careful. I, as, and as time was on, I became less and less careful because I thought, okay, I have more of an obligation. I mean, I'm not, I, I, what am I going to use this platform for other than to share this kind of information? Um, I, I do, I, I'd say like my, the, my, my sense of what the vaccine ought to be used for and how it should be used, uh, it, it, it seemed to me, and it still seems to me, like for older people, it might have been justified to, to, to recommend the vaccine. Uh, when you, even though you don't know the full set of side effects, because the the marginal benefit in terms of reducing the rate of, rate of dying from disease is, is is a big deal for older people. This disease really kills old people. And for children, I wrote an op-ed with with Martin Kuldorf in April of 2021 uh, in the Hill, saying that it doesn't make any sense to give this vaccine to children. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure I'm sure I got on their list. I mean that 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 op-ed probably put me on their list. Um, it's not only that, I mean, they, the, you know, this, there was this firm PGP nonprofit, but they partner also with a company Talkwalker. that now they like logically use artificial intelligence to monitor millions of conversations in variety of languages for sentiment analysis, for keyword analysis. So even if, you know, it's, it's not someone with a lot of influence and expertise like you, if someone's making a similar critique as you. And they're they're profiling you as Jay Bhattacharya. There's a dangerous misinformer sharing a dangerous link to a study, peer-reviewed study. Um, anyone else discussing it around the world is potentially flagged. I mean, that, that's the power of, the, of this technology. I, I would get those emails. I'd say I'd get emails from people say, Jay, I sent I sh I shared your tweet on Facebook, and then Facebook tagged me, and now I can't get into my account anymore. <laughs> I mean, that's just absurd. Uh, and so, and, and it was like, it was one of these things where like, uh, you really couldn't talk about the vaccine very, if, if, if uh, you sort of any, any, any honest way without, you know, it's, it's like this, in, you're in the Soviet Union and you have to like talk in code to make sure that the KGB doesn't <laughs> know who you are. Who I mean, it's, it's, you're exaggerating, but we're, we're, I mean, it's, there's a, there's a slither of truth there. I mean, I've written about drug companies, hospitals, you know, the for-profit healthcare system for 15 years, 16 years, I covered health reform and variety of parts of the healthcare policy debate since 2009. When I wrote stories like this, critical of pharmaceutical companies, I had all the big liberal accounts retweeting me and sending my story out. I had Democratic politicians and interest groups, you know, blasting my stories out. I'm doing the same thing. Nothing's changed. But now only I can talk about it on niche podcasts. And this is not an insult. <laughs> I love your, I love what you're doing with Robin. 
it's just, but why isn't this a bigger story? That's much my it point. Really I mean, like Moderna basically made billions and billions of dollars based on taxpayer funded money. Um, and it used that money uh, to to essentially defame anyone that was sharing true fa- facts in, from the scientific literature with the public at large that that painted the product in a negative light. And actually, there was more to the to your story, which I was this 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 detail really struck me um, in your story. Uh, you found that there were forty five thousand health professionals that Moderna trained. Did they pay them? I, I couldn't tell exactly, but they they certainly pulled them into their orbit. That's right. Part of this partnership with PGP, this NGO, was to not just flag and identify dangerous spreaders of misinformation, but to create talking points and information materials to work with nurses, doctors, healthcare professionals all over the country. They said that they had they'd already secured a network of 45,000 healthcare professionals and to equip them with the facts because in their internal documents it said you know, healthcare workers are, you know, our most powerful communication tools. You know, these are the folks who can persuade patients to take vaccines the most. So, you know, the, 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 the lines, the corporate line, the line between corporate PR and public health has been completely eradicated because if, if you're selling a widget or selling whatever, you know, you, you have every right to try to market that product, get it out there. But if you're working in p- public health and the public interest, um, you know, that, that's a divine space where you can't just sell a product. Your, your motivations have to be the public interest and in, in human health. Yeah. And so like, a, a, so for, for instance, a doctor that uh, goes to a drug company lunch, well, the drug company is supposed to tell uh, the, the, the public about that. In fact, there's a, there's a, uh, a, a database called the Open Payments Database, which I'm sure you've heard of. Yeah. Um, which anyone can go and like search their, the name of their doctor and the doctor and the, and all the drug companies um, are supposed to have given the names of all the doctors that came to their lunches. Just so you can know, like, it seems like it's a reasonable thing to know. Like, is this person getting a lot of money from drug companies? In fact, the head of the NIH, the current head of the NIH got tens of millions of dollars from research for, for, for research from Pfizer. Yeah. This disclosure is important. I, I, I don't, one interesting aspect of this, and this is this might sound minor, but it's exactly the point you're making. So they did launch. I don't know if they've sent out all the materials they discussed, but they did launch this anti-infodemic project with the 45,000 healthcare workers. I look at the site, no mention of Moderna, even though in the files that I obtained show that they're hand in glove with Moderna. Moderna is, is steering the reports. They're guiding the whole project. They're the ones that set this up with PGP. I look at the public-facing site that healthcare workers, nurses, and doctors are supposedly logging into and learning how to persuade people to take the vaccine. They have no idea that this is a Moderna project. At least from the last version I saw of this website, I looked at it for two or three months. I haven't looked at it in this calendar year yet. Maybe they've updated it, but no disclosure of Moderna. It's, so it's entirely astroturf, right? It's made to look like some scientists put together some information, but it's Moderna behind the scenes, essentially marketing its product. Um, yeah, and the, with the motivations very clear. I mean, the investor reports are crystal clear. Yeah, even and even even with 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 absolutely no scruples about whether the the things that they're critiquing are true or false. Right, they will perfectly happily go after people make, saying true things if it impinges on their on their product. Yeah, and they they talk about when they when they're flat and you know I, I wrote this is a two part series I wrote 
two stories on these Moderna documents. And in most of the cases, they don't bother rebutting the su supposed misinformation. It's just a red flag, high risk misinformation. Why is this dangerous? Because this person has reach, because this person has credibility. I mean, <laughs> and that's that's not a public health reason. That's, a, again, it looks a lot more like a business corporate PR decision. And, you know, the funny thing, uh, there's another, another funny, uh, you know, this is a fantastic set of stories. I really, anyone that's listening, I highly recommend to go go read uh, Lee's Substack to find them. Um, but uh, th there was a funny, really interesting kind of uh, kind of kind of detail. Those tens of thousands of doctors, they're not they're not just saying go to Facebook and Twitter. They're saying anywhere. Yeah. Right. We they're like they're like they're, it's like they're evangelists for Moderna. Uh, even even like so I okay so probably more than I should reveal about myself, but like I, I I'm kind of I I have a, a very large collection of video games on this platform called Steam. Yeah, um, yeah. uh, I don't have time to play them, but you know, it's fun to look at them. Um, and, and, and anyway, so the, the, um, uh, uh, the, the, they're telling him, go to the video game platforms. If you see any, any, uh, uh, subversive messages that might undermine the demand for Moderna on steam, let, let it make sure to combat it there. Let us know. Yeah. I, I, the, the AI monitoring is tapped into steam. They're listening to conversations of gamers talk about vaccine issues and actually, I saw my story got posted on a, I guess, I don't know if forum is the right word or chat chat room in Steam. And then I, I assume this is organic or maybe it's AstroTurf, but people immediately said, no, that's that's conspiracy talk. No way are we being listened to by <laughs> pharmaceutical companies. It's like, well, documents are right there. Well, the funny thing, Lee, I posted your story, a link to your story on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I, I've collected uh, my own group of trolls uh, over, over the course of my time at Twitter. Uh, and, uh, you know, for the most part, for the last year or so, they've left me alone. But as soon as I posted your story, many of them were back. Uh, you know, old friends trying to, with the same talking points. Uh, it was, it's, it's just interesting. Um, and it's really easy to tell yourself, it's, it's all just conspiracy theory. I mean, it, it could be. I mean, I might be seeing things. But on the other hand, like, the idea that, you have a drug company that pays healthcare professionals to pretend like they're giving their organic advice when they're all what they're doing is just spewing Moderna talking points. They, they're probably some of them are paid without telling you that they're actually in the service of Moderna. I mean, that's that's just unethical. Yeah, there's been a lot of focus because of Missouri v. Biden, which you know you're a plaintiff too, and um, uh, the the House congressional committees have have looked into this. This, this issue of kind of government influence, astroturf, pro-pandemic communications. Uh, of course, there's been a couple stories from Twitter files and others. I think this is scratching the surface. I mean, you had such a mobilization of public health officials, of doctors, of healthcare professionals to evangelize this product. To, you know, when we we're in lockdown, the only way to really communicate was social media, to bully on social media, to, to kind of shout from the rooftops, to take the vaccine and that anyone who asked questions needed to be censored as a dangerous spreader of misinformation. It's part of the infodemic of misinformation. I, I, we've really just seen a focus on a few on the CDC and a few federal agencies. But I think this problem goes much deeper and potentially some of your trolls. Yeah. I mean, and the fun, and you know, like I, I've worked with the FDA before. Uh, one of the major uh, things that the FDA does is to regulate what drug companies can say about their own products. Right. So that's why you have this like crazy thing where like sometimes you'll see a, a TV ad for a drug product and they uh, they'll, they'll they won't even tell you what it's for. Just like these fuzzy things and then go ask your doctor about. 
some drug. Right. The reason they do that is because they have a rule that if they say use this drug for this thing, then they have to list the 5,000 side effects with the drug. Right. They, they don't want to do that, right? Well, so just as, as the Pentagon kind of had a social media loophole for propagandizing the domestic American population, I think pharmaceuticals kind of have a – pharmaceutical firms kind of have a social media loophole for getting around any kind of disclosure because we've got a lot of rules on payments to doctors on those TV ads you're talking about. But once they fund a third party that then organizes the healthcare professionals, where's the disclosure? It's, and so it's, it's an astroturfed kind of movement among doctors and healthcare professionals to sell a drug product to, to the American people. And the average person has no idea, you know, because rightfully so, physicians, nurses, healthcare professionals have a lot of respect in our society. You know, they, they do important work, they're an important institution. But that can be corrupted like any other institution. And that's the thing is like once people start to understand that, that's actually at risk. It's not as if it's a permanent fact. It, it, that trust was earned over decades because, you know, people uh, go into these professions because, you know, the, the, when you write a, an application for go, going to med school, what's the first thing? Why are you going to med school? It's like I want to help people. That is the – that's got to be the motivation, right? Um, but if it's if it's not, if it's like, you know, you're serving the the – you know, sort of the pecuniary interest of a pharmaceutical company, you can you can get you can get rid of trust really fastly. It's yeah, really. I dangerous. mean, that, this is the crisis we're in today. We're in a crisis of trust, and it's brought upon us by perhaps the decline of newspapers and and media, the role of social media, but then just the behavior of these companies and these social media companies and the government as well. I mean, there's there's a lot of blame to go around. Yeah. Well, Lee, uh, we're coming up on an hour. I just want to say, I, I know you say you don't want to solve, uh, you're not going to propose any solutions to the problems. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you, uh, if you just keep exposing these these things, keep lifting up the rocks and looking at the beetles, I think that that has to be the very first step in, in the solution, whatever it ends up being. And I'm really grateful to you for having done that. Thanks so much for having me. And Jay, it's always fun to talk to you. Um, this is great. And appreciate your subject. Oh, thank you so much. Take care, everybody. This is uh, Professor Jay Bhattacharya talking with Lee Fong for the Illusion of Consensus podcast. Until next time.